This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I am your host, Trevor Williams. And you know it by now, or you don't. Um, this is the one-stop shop for anybody curious to learn about where their food comes from and all the fascinating aspects of the agriculture industry, like direct-to-consumer businesses, agritourism, countless entrepreneurs kind of revolutionizing agriculture, and all that awesome stuff. So, And today on the show, we are going to be interviewing a fourth-generation farmer from Saskatchewan, Canada. His name is Rob Stone. And he knows all things Canadian wheat. So Rob and I are going to talk about his family's history on the farm, what their no-till operation and glyphosate usage is. I know that's kind of a hot-button issue, Um, but we're going to learn from an expert why they use it, what his philosophy is on no-till, and really what the breakdown is percentage-wise about how much Saskatchewan farmers um, use no-till and stuff like that, as well as some environmental issues he sees and um, his time as the director of the Saskatchewan Wheat Development Commission. So this is an awesome interview. Love chatting with farmers from Canada to kind of figure out what's going on, how the country is faring in terms of agriculture, and all that good stuff. So I hope you enjoy it. Be sure to check out Rob over on Twitter. I will link all of his stuff in the description below. And also a quick little note, for some reason, the software that I use to record these podcast episodes, um, it skipped over part of the interview for some reason. And so um, I think about 15 minutes into the interview, you'll hear like a little sound effect that goes like swoosh. Um, But basically it's just like a little transition to a little bit further down in the interview. It skipped over, I think like a minute. Um, So it's not nothing major. So just be on the lookout for that. Uh, Also, if you're new here, consider sharing with a friend or family member. I know um, if you're like me, most podcasts are being listened to, you know, while you're doing stuff around the home, when you're working out, when you're driving, all that good stuff. So whenever you're done doing whatever it is you're doing while you're listening to this episode, consider sharing with a friend or family member. That helps us out a ton, and it helps more and more people learn about all the amazing people 
behind the scenes in the agriculture industry. So I hope you enjoy this episode. It is episode 138 with Rob Stone. Thanks for listening. And um, I don't I don't know if I've said it enough. Please enjoy this episode. I think you will enjoy it. Rob Stone, welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast, man. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic in uh, sunny and cold Saskatchewan. Hey, uh, I'm jealous it's rainy and cold here in Florida, but I mean, I'm, I'm glad it's cold here for once in a while. Um, so you are you are a farmer in Saskatchewan. Before we kind of dive into that, kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of how you wound up doing that. Sure. Well, like it's a, it's a generational thing here. We are, I'd be the fourth generation farming here mm-hmm. in uh, Davidson in Saskatchewan. We might have to work on your Saskatchewan uh, yeah. for a little yeah. bit there. <laughs> Is so, it Saskatchewan? Uh, anyways, Saskatchewan, uh, not, not Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan. It just sort of rolls. And I, oh, okay. I, I don't know what the, uh, the the phonetic look of it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyways, <laughs> uh, a, a side a sidebar already. Um, so, yeah, we fourth generation farming here. Uh, 1904 was when this farm was established, um, and we're still farming exactly where where it started. And uh, the original house is still uh, here on the farm as well. That was that was here when all things started. So that's my start in it. And I probably never want to do anything but farm, uh, in spite of uh, several people coaching you other ways, saying I don't know why you'd want to do that. So uh, I've just that's when anybody asked me what I wanted to do, I always said I wanted to be a farmer, not an astronaut, not a policeman, farmer. <laughs> and uh, I'm really fortunate and glad that we're able to. Uh, to continue that legacy here and uh, have a fifth generation pretty interested in having a look at it. Yeah, that's exciting. I mean, 104 years or over 104 years. I mean, what, like 100 and, I don't know, 16, 118 years, I guess. I'm yeah, yeah. Math. And there was, a, there was a brief, you know, in the family history, there was a brief time where they had rented it out some years, but uh, the land's been in our, uh, mm-hmm. in our family for, for that amount of time. And uh, a lot of stuff has happened here. I bet. Yeah. So, I mean, what were kind of the first crops that they were growing back then? And then where do you guys continuing to grow now? Basically then it would have been, uh, mostly, you know, feed for the horses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there'd be, you know, a mix of oats and whatnot and, and be some, be some wheat basically. And I, as far as all the other crops, we some barley and, and things like that, but, um, and that was all, you know, threshing threshing crews and you know hand hand done and all that sort of stuff so it certainly changed over the last 120 years uh to a point now where in the 60s 70s 80s we were we were hog farmers uh, and uh, i was pretty young when when we got out of hogs but for for a while there most of our production went into uh, went through the hogs and out and uh, now we're a bit larger uh, grain farming operation that uh grows canola lentils barley wheat durham peas we've dabbled in soybeans and corn as well so um quite a quite a diverse uh cropping opportunity uh in central saskatchewan for the crops that we can attempt to grow and the crops that we continue to grow uh right now yeah so how how crazy is it to grow all those crops at once i mean what kind of goes into the planning of all that well i think you just get kind of accustomed to it where it's it's kind of frightening probably at the prospect of only having one crop for example Mm -hmm. that, that you have in so I mean, it's, it's planned out. Uh, we have a lot of time in the winter to plan out what we do. And, and as you, uh, as you continue to do these things, it becomes a bit more automatic, but we're always looking for ways to tweak and, and implement different things. So as a rule right now, it kind of looks like a third of our farm is in pulses, which is, is red lentils. Mm. Um, 
and the other third would be in a cereal, either wheat or barley, and the other third is in canola. It's kind of a nice rotation that, that balances disease and balances some of the risk in the marketing and, and as far as uh, uh, work uh, cycle too, the lentils will come in a lot earlier in the season for us to uh, harvest them earlier in August and uh, canola hangs on until later so we can make better use of our time and equipment and those sorts of things as well. So it's it's a there's a lot of reasons that that go into these things and a lot of technical things beyond that that uh, reason when you want to grow one crop over the other but it really does come back to the number one thing is evaluating profitability yeah i mean i've been watching um kind of the crop prices the past year or so and they've been all over the place i mean it's wild how some will fluctuate so much and then i mean it's definitely a good idea to have multiple crops that way if one tanks You've got a bunch more that you can profit off, off of, which I mean, you're kind of diversifying, which is a great idea. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just there's so many like yeah, you look at the markets right now, and and who would have thought that you would have like old crop canola at twenty three dollars a bushel mm. uh, if you've got any in the bins, and you know we're looking at some new crop uh, prices as well that are that are quite good, but twelve months ago you would never been able to predict that. So uh, having all your eggs in one basket for those that that win at it. It's great, but uh, having having a diversified approach is, is really uh, done well for us here. That's awesome. And so when it comes to canola and barley, I mean, I know a lot of people know canola oil and all that good stuff. Barley is used for beer. Are there any other uses that people might not know about that, I mean, canola and barley can be used for later on in the production line? Yeah, so so canola, yeah, number one kind of use of it is, is, a, is as, a, as a good, healthy uh, cooking oil. Uh, healthy oil for edible oils and salads and all that sort of stuff and basis for manufacturing you know if it if it needs oil canola oil is a really really nice uh, good profile oil for a, a lot of people's cooking I mean you know everybody that grows a crop if it's soybean oil then that's going to be the best oil for what you're doing and it's got there's some fits there as well recently though we've had some fantastic uh, uh, announcements in Saskatchewan I think we've had four or five uh, crushing uh, processing plants announced in Regina in the last six months. And the most recent announcement was uh, a kind of a, uh, uh, between uh, between AGT and Federated Co-op that they're going to source a bunch of canola and they're going to crush it and it's going to be part of our renewable fuels uh, standards mm. uh, going forward. So there's a lot of growth into uh, biofuels with canola now. There's a lot of attributes with why canola is a, a good choice uh, environmentally for uh, for inclusion in biodiesel. So we're starting to see a lot of demand come from that sort of stuff as well. And so really lessens our, our reliance long term on exporting. We've run into uh, you know, trading issues with China over the years and those sorts of things where uh, when it when it suits, they, they find reasons to not want to, want to uh, buy our canola or put some phytosanitary sort of demands on it. So anytime that we can be doing more of the processing right here at home, and in my case, an hour and a half from my farm, um, quite happy to see those things. So that's, you know, the canola story is great. Um, it's a relative newcomer to the ag scene, really. Uh, we didn't start growing canola until the mid-1990s uh, on this farm. Mm. Uh, before, we were mostly summer, fall, and wheat. And then as we adapted to uh, direct seeding, zero till, and continuous cropping, and all those sorts of things, we broadened our, our cropping uh, as well. So uh, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of wealth established in, in uh, Saskatchewan from these uh, new, called the newer crops, where a lot of research is uh, 
push them on. So, so as far they... as I guess you have to be able to barley. Sorry, I cut you off there. No, Go you're ahead. good. Go ahead. Okay, yeah. So so barley, um, yeah. There's there's a, a good demand for malting uh, for, uh, barley, and uh, recently, um, I guess you know it's been a trend in the last ten to fifteen years. These microbrewed beers have mm. really uh, uh, increased. Uh, demand for specific types of malts and you know a lot more uh, uh, different flavors and tastes and all that sort of stuff but the nice thing about that is uh, the microbrew people use basically all malt barley uh, oh, okay. as a base for their for their beers whereas some of the you know call them, I, I don't they call them the mass produced beers and I, I drink them all I like I like a Coors I like a, a Budweiser and I like a, something from Rebellion or wherever else like <laughs> closer uh, maltster kind of thing and in fact they make some of their beers out of red lentils as well oh, so okay there's, there's a lot of variety going into these things back to the malt barley they use basically 100 malt barley there's no sugar there's no anything else for their for their base for their brews so it's a lot more full uh flavored beer and it creates a lot it, they use a lot more barley per beer than anybody else does so uh, the rest of it uh, the barley goes into goes into feeding a lot of feed barley goes to southern Alberta into their uh, into their uh, cattle finishing there, and we've got an interesting situation right now where we don't have enough barley in Western Canada to feed the livestock, and they're pulling up corn like crazy out of the U.S. right now. We're one of uh, the U.S.'s number one export markets right now is is Western Canada. Oh wow! I mean. That's wild. I mean, have you seen going off of the beer thing? Have you seen like a huge increase in all the little microbreweries that pop up? Because I mean, down here in Florida, I've seen it feels like there's one popping up every month. And I mean, they're usually making small batches of really good beer, but you know, trying to get local barley, local canola whenever they can. I think that's super fun. Yeah, that's we've seen a lot uh, more kind of integration with uh, with people that are that are interested in doing these microbrewery things. I think we saw the real explosion of it some years ago, and I think we're seeing uh, just kind of the more development and the refinement of that industry. If if you can kind of use that terminology, there'd be some people kind of dropping off that perhaps wanted to try it and wasn't quite their thing, and some consolidation into some integrated businesses where it's the pub that supplies it and they've got the, the whole thing and they've got a storefront that sells all these different creative beers and it's really neat to see uh, see it develop and know that the barley could possibly come right from our farm an hour away to to where it's being uh, being processed that's awesome into something that's a lot yeah, yeah and, and something and a lot tastier than just whole barley yeah and hopefully you would get like a free beer out of that i mean i feel like that's got to be a thing like oh you provide us the barley we give you some beer that's got to be a win-win right uh, <laughs> we sold some to Anheuser and I really hoped uh, some years ago by rail cars and I, I always pushed them. I said, you know, I want to go to Bush Gardens, but then, uh, <laughs> then they became, you know, then in and everything else. So they weren't as, weren't as much fun, but I never did get to Bush Gardens. So oh, man. <laughs> I'm still going to work on that. There you go. I've only been once down in Tampa. Um, and I remember that whenever my wife and I went there, I was like, all right, there's one thing I want to see. And I want to see the Clydesdales from the Budweiser Clydesdales. And we got there. They're huge. Yep. I, I think that was the first time I'd seen a Clydesdale up front. Yep. And I mean, they are, horses are big, but Clydesdales are like a whole different creature. They are massive. They're like a tank. Draft horses are amazing. Um, and I don't even know if they've got, I think that they got rid of the Clydesdales and all that sort of stuff too. But uh, I, yeah, draft horses and, and people that handle them and, and do all that sort of stuff, is it, it's, uh, it's quite an intimidating thing to be working around those. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it makes you think about back in, well, I guess even currently in like lesser developed countries where they're using draft horses all the time instead of tractors and stuff. I mean, it's still going on. And that's the way it was for like hundreds and hundreds of years. That's probably how it was back whenever you guys' farm started in like the 1900s. Yeah, it was definitely it was definitely all mostly powered by by uh, by animals and everything else, and then you know you had the steam steam things and the threshing crews and all that sort of stuff, and then you started into the gas powered and or arguing about rubber wheeled tractors and whether that was better than steel wheels, and they didn't have Twitter back then to argue about that on, so I don't know how they argued about all <laughs> of those different issues. I suppose that they had to actually you know see other people to argue about it and go to town and argue at the coffee shop like they still do, I suppose. So it's been a lot of change you know, over the last 120 years in agriculture, whoever you talk to. Oh yeah, I bet. And I bet arguing is a little bit more civil than it was now or that it is now on Twitter, thanks to Twitter and social media and the anonymity of it all. <laughs> I mean, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like thinking about that, you know, where, where, you know, you uh, respectfully disagree and, you know, they, Maybe it ends in a duel. I don't know, but uh, at least it was very gentlemanly. I think so. <laughs> you know, that's true. I did forget about that. I mean, back in the day, if you had a disagreement, you would literally shoot at each other over it. So I don't know. Maybe things haven't gotten better. I mean, that's funny. I always forget about that. But I mean, that's... I think maybe human nature just manifests itself in a different way. We're always kind of just mean people when we disagree. I guess sometimes, mm. and other people are quite nice about it. That's true. Yes. Some people are like, you know, it's okay if you disagree. And other people are like, no, I'm right. And you have to follow me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You see that a lot. Uh, You know, when now we're getting into, you know, how people farm and there's so many different ways to do this. And obviously what your, what your interest of of interviewing people from, from different spots is. And uh, you certainly see that where some people are so entrenched in their opinion about what they're doing is right. And they need, I guess, to, to validate what they're doing they need everybody else to tell them that that's the right and only way to do things it's just the diversity of of how things are accomplished uh, should be celebrated for sure yeah it's wild because i mean even while like you said like while doing this um podcast i've learned that a farmer in saskatchewan like you what works on his farm might not work on a wheat farm here in florida and that's okay and you're going to have different viewpoints and different practices and stuff like that but i mean no two farms even if they grow or raise the same thing are going to be exactly the same or do the same practices. I mean, all farms have different soil, different climates, different nutrients in the soil and all that good stuff. So, I mean, it's wild how one crop grown in one location can differ than the same crop being grown in a different location, all the practices and stuff like that. It's wild. Well, absolutely. Even the quality attributes, the differences mm-hmm. between the varieties. I mean, everybody grows wheat, but we don't grow, We're, for example, we don't grow winter wheat here. There's very, very, very few acres of winter wheat. It's all hard red spring wheat that basically gets grown here. There's some soft whites and there's some ethanol and, and feed considerations for different kinds of general purpose wheats, but the majority of the wheat that's grown here is, is hard red spring wheat. Trouble is, is I think, you know, we can even talk about that a little bit too, is, you know, it, our internet's getting better out here. Our reliance on the internet continues to increase. Mm-hmm. So then of course you're using more internet, so it got better, but it's your demands of it continue to increase as well. Yeah, I've seen a lot of stuff, at least here in the U.S., where people, there have been more, um, I guess, kind of like government stuff going on where it's like, hey, we're going to get faster rural internet and stuff like that. And even even companies like SpaceX that are doing all the, the Starlink stuff, which I think is interesting. Yeah. I mean, more internet for more people, which, which will be great. Mine's on order. I ordered it about a year ago, and uh, there's lots of people in the area that are getting them, and they're just, they're amazing. Really? Uh, just the results that you see, the uploads and the downloads and stuff like that. So 
um, it's it's it'll be I think by the time that the government kind of figures out how to subsidize and, and make the internet better, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Elon might have it all solved. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I like going out at night, looking at the stars, and you just see the row of Starlink satellites. It's like I don't know. 20, 25 satellites in a row just going by in a line. I'm like, oh, there's the internet right there. It's, yep. it's yep. weird, but it's so cool. It'll probably be an unintended consequence of it at some point that there'll be so many satellites up there that, you know, that there'll be some issues with that. that uh, one thing creates more problems. Yeah, that's true. I mean, one solution is going to cause more problems, but hopefully yep. we can solve it. Um, yep. And so we were talking in our pre-interview the other day that you guys do no-till. So what exactly yeah. is your production process and then why do you do no-till? Well, we used to, like, way back in the day, we, you know, you, when we started the farm, you plowed and you harrowed and you seeded and did all those sorts of things. And then we got rid of the plow and you just dissed it and cultivated it. And, and in, up into the 80s or 90s even, we were still kind of half and half summer follow and, and wheat and cultivating uh, for weed control and, and those sorts of things. And, but we had this massive erosion issue, like in a lot of drier areas where every time the wind blew, we, a lot of dirt blew. And uh, we know that the soil is our number one resource. And as people kind of got looking at this more, it, it, it was determined, of course, that uh, less tillage is less risk to, to erosion. So into the, into the 80s, a lot of researchers and, and visionary type people in Saskatchewan, where it's kind of the grounds and the, and the home for for zero till started adapting and making equipment uh, that was much more suitable to uh, lower disturbance seeding, uh, lower, uh, less tillage passes and all those sorts of things. So uh, introduced the much lower price of glyphosate from the seventies to the eighties to the nineties. I mean, like we used to measure that stuff out with thimbles to go kill quackgrass patches. It was so expensive. <laughs> and then we do a little bit of summer fallow with, with uh, glyphosate and we chem fallow to try and keep some cover. Um, but now um, every acre that we that we seed is uh, is zero tilt. So we've got a uh, a tool or an air drill that places fertilizer, places the seed all in one pass in the springtime, and seed a crop with that. And unless we've got some waste areas or places where there's ruts, which we haven't experienced in several years, we're in the middle of a massive drought right now. Um, we don't till anything. So. Um, and that's not to say that other people in other areas in Western Canada uh, run their farm a little bit differently, but 75% of the acres in Saskatchewan um, are at least low disturbance or zero tilled practice. So, um, which is, you know, it's quite an impact in Canada. Uh, Saskatchewan is 40% of the arable, arable uh, crop mm-hmm. acres in Canada is in Saskatchewan. So, uh, you know, it makes a it means a big thing. That's a lot of acres that are uh, that are not prone to erosion risk and those sorts of things. Um, and that's that's what we do here. Yeah, that's awesome. Seventy five percent. So, have you seen? I mean, no till is great. Like all the research I've done on it. I mean, it helps prevent erosion. You help leave nutrients in the soil and stuff like that. So, have you seen any improvement for your crops since you guys have adapted the no till? I, th- I think, you know, and it, it's it's tough to draw a straight line because we've had so much genetic improvement and we've had so mm-hmm. much improvement in, in um, you know, kind of knowledge about fertilizer, knowledge about uh, all these different sorts of practices. But I would say for sure that we've we've uh, improved our, our moisture retention, having cover 
with the previous year's uh, residue and all that sort of stuff uh, helps retain moisture. And we were building organic matter and we're putting a bunch of carbon back in the soil. Uh, so we start talking about all these carbon credit things and all this environmental stuff that we are, um, I don't know, seem to be surrounded by these days. We've been doing that for a long time before we knew that that was really cool. Um, and so that's some nice side effects of it is that we've been sequestering a lot of carbon in our, in our uh, system and carbon being the basis of life and all those sorts of things, it is, shows up beneficial in your organic matter. So I think we're growing better crops with less um, and continue to do so as we keep cycling more of that crop material. It does bring some issues with certain nutrients. It stratifies uh, potassium and, and there's some, some thoughts about uh, various things and that people are going to have to look at solving with, you know, looking in at some different cover cropping and intercropping and all that mm -hmm. sort of stuff. But we're, we're pretty boring farmers here. We, we, we try to efficiently produce and, and keep everything, um, keep, keep everything as simple as possible, uh, but respecting a lot of the trends that are out there and paying attention to them as well. Yeah. I mean, that's such a key, uh, a key point. Like, you know, it's going to work on your farm. You've been working it for so long. Your family has, but I mean, also you're open to improvements and stuff that's going to help improve it, which I think is awesome. Like, you know, it's going to work, but you also want to try new stuff and see yeah. if it works to help improve it even more. Well, if you look at it, changes in our DNA, because in the last 120-ish years, we've uh, our methods have really changed a lot. We started with fairly high organic matter, uh, basically native, native sod. And over the years, farming practices watched a lot of that, uh, a lot of that organic matter through lower fertility or no fertility really until we were fertilizing in the 60s and 70s using mm. bags of fertilizer and put some 28 26 in the disker or whatever you're using uh up to now where we're you know precisely placing at seeding time variable rate uh prescriptions of of our macronutrients and you know looking at some other prescriptive methods of of seeding rate now and even managing different field zones differently with uh, variable rate fungicide and all the other opportunities that are out there in all the digital ag space right now. So um, we have to keep an open mind, but I don't think we can be too distracted by some of the promise of practices that are coming because we still have to re rely on what's got us there. Mm, that's a good point. I like that. And so you brought up something earlier. You, you were saying that you guys use or you have used glyphosate. Is that right? Yep. Yep. So as an expert, I know that's one of those hot ticket items that people outside of ag kind of, they get offended by, even though they don't know what it is. They just know it's yep. a chemical, even though water's a chemical. So from an expert, like why do you use glyphosate and how has it helped improve your crops? So glyphosate, uh, one of the original and largest uses on the farm is as a preceding uh, burn off in order to control annual and some uh, overwintered winter annual weeds uh, before we seed. Uh, without having that pass uh, available to us, uh, zero till doesn't really happen uh, in order to have some sort of broad spectrum control of that early flush of spring weeds. Uh, we used to accomplish that with, you know, uh, our preceding tillage in the past on the summer fall and whatever else before you took the drill out. So now, uh, you know, a couple hundred grams of active ingredient per acre of glyphosate mixed with a multiple mode of action product that uh, has some synergies and, and helps with resistance and all that sort of stuff um, is, is the practice that we use in front of basically every acre. But it is not a practice that we would use uh, blindly. There's been years where we haven't sprayed some acres in front. You scout your fields, you assess what's there, 
and uh, and you go ahead. As far as the safety risk and all those things, both to the applicators environment, it's been proven. Uh, I don't know. It's it's become so repetitive how many times it's been proven how safe mm-hmm. this stuff is. Um, for like I say, for both both the soil, the operators, and everybody else that's involved with it. But yet, uh, because it is one of the most widely used uh, crop protection products in North American agriculture, it presents a pretty good target for uh, people that are trying to raise some money for their causes. So um, it's it's unfortunate because it really it's, it adds cost, I think, to uh, to to the products. It adds cost to our operations when there's you know multi billion dollar payouts uh, from these companies for for some of these claims and stuff like that. Um, it adds costs to their manufacturing. It adds costs to the things that they need to do. It's a product that benefits us all. And uh, it, it's, it's just too bad that this is the way it's going to go. I, I like having the open mind about these things because we want, it's it's contributed so much good to our farm operation. I mean, there's other uses for glyphosate as well as in crop. We grow uh, glyphosate-resistant uh, uh, crops. We grow canola, we grow uh, some corn and different uh, guys that grow corn for grazing and silage and, and some grain corn. We've tried that in the past. So uh, Roundup Ready or, or glyphosate tolerant uh, soybeans uh, are in the area as well. Uh, we don't have, like we don't do cotton or any of those other uh, crops. Uh, we don't have Roundup Ready alfalfa as well. But so that's used for in-crop control. Well, either that or we use glufosinate tolerant Liberty uh, canola. Uh, as our herbicide tolerant crops, so those have uh, presented a, the ability to to expand those crops across this area, ability to have uh, healthy oil, have these renewable oils, all these sorts of things because of this plant breeding. And an important point to point out is that there it is not all glyphosate tolerant crops. There's lots of mm-hmm. different herbicide tolerant crops out there, aside from just glyphosate. So that's used in season in rotation. And there's also other canola uh, crop uh, choices out there that are resistant to uh, to some group two chemistries that is more traditionally bred and that goes into uh, non-GMO markets. And, and so there's there's choice. Uh, in the fall, we will use uh, a pre-harvest treatment of glyphosate uh, from time to time to deal with some weed issues. It just works really well with, uh, with the timing uh, in order to deal with some weed issues and uh, undergrowth green and all that sort of stuff, uh, respecting the uh, MRLs that are established for it, long established, as well as um, the crop scouting timing and all of the keep it clean um, uh, recommendations for the use of glyphosate for those pre-harvest applications. Uh, it's crop protection to me is pretty simple. It's just, you know, using the right product at the right time and, and respecting the respecting the directions and label directions and all the industry advice, um, you're going to have a good outcome. So that's my little glyphosate junket, I guess. And um, <laughs> it's just really frustrating to me that we're not just glyphosate farmers. We're not just glufosinate farmers. We we have like, I was asked to give a list to a, a consultant that we're working with yesterday on a uh, kind of an interesting project that, uh, and he wanted to know what products we use so he could load up a, a monitor to do a, a test run in our sprayer. So I started doing just the, the trade name stuff and I came up with a list of 20 or 30 different products that we'll, we'll pick from uh, fungicide, uh, insecticide, herbicide, and we don't use them all, but I mean, those are the choices. Those are the ones that 
are in the toolbox that we particularly choose if we've got you know higher wild oak levels or if we're concerned about uh, different resistance issues in certain fields or whatever else so um, the it's it's a broad selection glyphosate's one product it's easily picked on and and that's just where we are <laughs> yeah i mean what you're saying is awesome because i mean it's it's a tool in, the, in your toolbox that you can use to help grow your crops but a lot of people it's like a buzzword and it gets them offended but then like you were saying earlier like you use it in such a small amount and it's diluted and then used over a huge area i mean people think that you're just filling up like literally like a sprayer with thousands of gallons of just straight pure glyphosate but of course if you did that you'd probably kill all of your crops and then again like not all crops are glyphosate tolerant it's only going to be a select few yeah absolutely so the the very specific thing that we do is we've got, we've got a 1200 gallon sprayer a john deere 40 r4044 um and so we'd spray 240 acres on a tank five gallons an acre of this stuff and so we would put into that 1200 gallon tank to spray 240 acres of preceding burnoff. We'd probably put 120 to 160 liters of glyphosate into that tank and then top the rest of it up with water. Hmm. So, and within that 120 to 160 liters, depending on what the formulation of, there's either 360 grams active ingredient per liter up to 540 grams active hmm. ingredient per liter. There's lots of little different carriers and surfactants and different brand things. So if you do the math on that 360 grams, we're, we're putting, you know, four or five or six kilograms of glyphosate salt into that tank that does 240 acres. So, and, and each crop protection product is different. Some are in the two to three grams of active ingredient that's applied per acre. And some of the older products are just more stuff. Doesn't really mean that it's more harmful or less harmful is just that that's what you need in order to accomplish the job that the research has determined that it can do. <laughs> yeah, there's so much chemistry that goes into it. I mean, like from an outsider, you just think that you just pick up a barrel or whatever, fill it with water, fill it with glyphosate or whatever, and then spray it. But I mean, there's, you've got to know like, what is what going to work with one crop? What's going to not, what's going to work with another one? And even like, yeah. even all the active ingredients and stuff, like you just don't know about that. It's, it's a full-time job keeping up on it, and you certainly see a lot more uh, people that uh, kind of admit their strengths and weaknesses and uh, reach for outside help with a consulting agronomist, or there's lots of different people in the industry that, you know, your retailers that are very knowledgeable about this stuff, and uh, people have a good comfort with uh, having these knowledgeable people do these things. And it's, we, we would care about our bottom line, certainly, but what affects our bottom line is doing a good job of things and not mm -hmm. over-applying not applying the wrong product, ending up with crop damage or any of those sorts of things. Yeah, like uh, one of the nicest innovations on our farm, I think, was uh, the sectional, well, down to actually individual nozzle control on our sprayer. Now it's 120 feet and it's on 20 inch nozzle spacing. Each individual nozzle will shut off if an area has been applied already. So we don't have overlaps anymore because you used to be able to see in the field way back when you didn't have that type of control where you did overlap or had a 2X rate or a 3X rate. Um, so we don't have those issues anymore. So it is really, really precise application as well, which is really great to see. Yeah, I mean, you're saving so much product too, and you're probably not also like, I mean, you're saving so much money, which is a win-win. Absolutely. We figured we we're probably about 7% uh, savings uh, from mm. from just even, and, and then you can narrow it down once again to uh, like 
sectional, a five or seven section boom to individual nozzle, you save again. And then with the turn compensation, as you turn the sprayer, the, uh, the one side of the boom will put out more than the than the inside part that's going slower now. So that's that's how precise these things can get. That's awesome. I mean, all about those advancements. Um, and so going on to a different subject, because I made yep. a note to talk to you about this. You're also the SAC Wheat Director, is that right? Yeah, Saskatchewan Wheat Development Commission, yes. Nice. So how'd you get involved with that? And then what's that whole experience been like? Well, so far, uh, just getting into the orientation board meetings and everything else. So I'm a, a relative rookie to, uh, I guess we we'll call it the farm politics or farm farm boards or the commission uh, level. I've always been interested in this stuff. Um, you know, you pay attention to what other people are doing. They're wearing the little bit nicer sports coat at meetings and stuff like that. And it looks like they really know what they're doing and uh, they're very knowledgeable and they're good at networking and all those sorts of things. So, uh, so I'm hoping someday to be very knowledgeable and good at networking and, and, uh, and look good in a sports coat. I'm, I'm hopeful <laughs> on that, but uh, beyond that, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of issues circling in ag. Obviously, we talked about it, glyphosate and technology and, you know, kind of almost our right to farm and all these kind of uh, sort of different issues than we've ever seen before. Probably earlier, we talked about social media. I mean, a lot of this mm-hmm. stuff comes from there. So uh, a lot of stuff swirling around. And then there's just some good old basic issues that's always out there in the commissions, uh, particularly with the one I'm involved with, a very large research focus as well. Uh with uh, projects that will support Saskatchewan wheat uh, levy payers. So I took, a, I've taken interest in these issues. I've reached out to the directors over the years and had conversations with people or, or uh, kibitz on Twitter with people about farm issues. And so I just, uh, there was an opportunity and an opening at, at the, at the board for the elections this fall. And I decided that it would be time for me to, uh, hopefully contribute some stuff uh, more so than what I get take back out of it. And uh, so far so good, but I can still claim that it's my first day. So uh, not too much, uh, <laughs> not too much pressure is placed on me yet. Uh, but yeah, divvying up uh, who sits on the subcommittees and all those sorts of things. There's a lot of things to be involved with. Uh, it's not a full-time job. It's a, it's pretty much a volunteer position. You know, there's, there's some honorarium and you get paid mileage for your travel and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's not like you're out of pocket, but it's it's certainly not uh, not a, not a full time off farm sort of thing. It's it's a it's a great position to try and affect some uh, the trajectory of, of our organizations going forward. Yeah. So, I mean, what's it been like to kind of build like some new relationships with fellow um, wheat growers in Saskatchewan? I mean, are you like just sharing research ideas, sharing what you're doing, just kind of help advocate for everybody? What's that been like? Yeah, and I think, you know, the interesting thing is for the most part, I pretty much know everybody that's on the board of directors. It's seven people on the board of directors. Mm. Um, getting to know some of the staff at South Week and stuff like that has been, been a great, great opportunity because there's a lot of, lot, of, uh, lot of people and information there. And I think the, the, the networking part of things is getting to know um, people in the other commissions in, in the provinces adjacent to us because they do a lot of work together between the three prairie provinces now. Just everybody... Like most farmers, you recognize when you can exercise some synergies uh, and and have a better, better, bigger outcome. So I think that that's going to expand my world a little bit because you kind of start from this little farm in central Saskatchewan and, and you keep kind of uh, talking to people that do use different practices that uh, till the soil because it's too wet and cold in the spring and we're too hot and windy and we're too worried about 
things blowing away and they're worried that their crop won't grow because it's going to freeze all the time. So just learning all these different things from uh, interacting with people on a personal level and then also uh, comparing some policy objectives and those sorts of things with people from different backgrounds. I bet that's awesome. I, I've seen like a lot of groups like this that, I mean, some I hadn't even heard of. I mean, like down here in Florida, there's a bunch of orange orange groups where they uh, kind of help with citrus and um, advocate for Florida grown orange juice and stuff like that. I mean, these groups are so great and especially just kind of all the advocacy work that they're doing, just kind of raise, raise awareness, getting everybody on the same page, helping inform locals about the products and stuff like that. I think they're great. It's awesome. Yeah, and I think, you know, they probably experience the same challenges we do is that obviously not everybody thinks the same. And there's a lot of groups mm. um, that represent a lot of things. And it's a matter of finding those common issues and being able to advocate for some of those things, um, especially, you know, with the, some of the environmental focuses that uh, affect all commodities, regardless of what you're doing right now. Uh, everybody needs to be able to make that sustainable claim. Everybody needs to be able to, to uh, be that higher profile thing that is going to solve some sort of problem that government's identified. So uh, it's finding those issues that we can uh, collaborate on is really important. What, what are some of those issues that you guys are trying to collaborate on? Well, I think right now, uh, certainly that, you know, in Canada, uh, certainly become a, this doesn't need to be a political podcast, but it always does get the political. <laughs> but, uh, <yeah. laughs> The focus uh, has certainly, everything now goes through a carbon lens, right? Mm -hmm. Everything's about carbon. What's your carbon intensity? What's your this? What's your that? And like what we talked about earlier on with our direct seeding and the carbon we're sequestering and things like that, we did that a long time before there was any real recognition that that, that, that was helpful. It was helping our farm and it was the right thing to do. And uh, So now it's, it's trying to either get recognition for the fact that we've been doing this for a long time um, or if or at least lessen the harm from carbon taxes, for example, that have been uh, uh, pushed onto us over the last few years and continue to increase in, uh, in value. Well, I guess I can't say value. The cost of the carbon tax increases from $30 a ton to 40 to $50 a ton. Mm. There's certain exemptions within farming, which is, which is quite good on some of our, our fuel and stuff like that. That's, but it's only a small portion of the carbon tax uh, that we're, you know, that we're a victim of, I suppose, in our production, in an inflation, all that sort of stuff, particularly when we are doing a lot of the environmental heavy lifting on the farm with uh, with what with sequestering carbon. So getting all that stuff figured out um, in amongst now to some some desires with uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions from nitrogen. There's That's kind of a topic that's quite hot right now. They, the government has muttered out loud about a 30% reduction in, in emissions from nitrogen fertilizer. Well, what does that mean? Like, does that mean just 30% less nitrogen applied on the farm? How do we come up with that number? Or does it 30% prove to us that you're doing a better job with emissions and stuff like that? So there's lots of lots of those political issues and it all seems to come back to environment. In uh, amongst to, uh, I think, uh, push for organic and and all of those things and uh and what what organic uh does for the environment versus what i would consider our, our conventional uh agricultural methods and all, those sorts of things yeah uh, i think we all can work together and play together but i think we just need to be real about what each of these different systems brings uh brings to people so getting those things sorted out as well yeah absolutely i mean 
I've been looking, I've been doing research on this whole carbon sequestration thing, and there's a bunch of um, policies going through here in the U.S., but it's weird to get some carbon credits, it only applies, I think like a large majority of it, only applies for newly sequestered carbon. And so if you're a no-till operation that's been doing it for 100 years, you can't qualify. You've got to do it on new land that hasn't been no-tilled before. Or you have to yeah. be a farmer that switches to no-till, which sometimes yeah. no-till might not work in your in your uh, on your farm. So it's very interesting yeah. that those. I mean, you're, the you're, the farmer's hands are kind of tied behind their back a little bit. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's a slippery slope thing because I don't think you should be able. You know, you can't reward for practices that that don't make a change, but then don't harm people that are doing an already pretty good job of things. So it's really mm-hmm. tough there. And I don't know, like, you know, this whole carbon selling your carbon credits for three dollars or five dollars or ten dollars or whatever to so that somebody else can pollute more. It's, it seems kind of interesting, but uh, I think you know we sold carbon credits ten years ago, fifteen years ago. It was beer money. We got a dollar an acre for a year or two <laughs> off of a few thousand acres, and you know it was. But now I think the person wants to be really careful with what you're signing up for because I think there's going to be a certain liability. To these things as well that you have to continue those practices and you have to prove that that carbon is where you put it um, and if there's a release of some sort is there a liability down the road um, you know how long is that owned by all those sorts of things really gets into carbon either it's carbon credit or it's uh, you know possession of your data and all that sort of things and your, mm. and your practices that you do on your farm who owns that who sees it it's uh, everything all really works together but it just takes a long time to put that web together of all of these things that don't seem related, they all seem to, they all seem to become one big issue. That's true. Do you think stuff like this, like carbon credits might be kind of just a current trend? Like, do you think there might be something else in like 10, 15 years that is a little bit that, I don't know, just kind of rides the, rides the current wave of politics? I think, I don't want to say it's here to stay in some form or another, but it's here to stay. I, I think it will change how it's administered or how it's mm-hmm. proven. I think it'll be more of a uh, kind of a carbon intensity backed by data, uh, be a lot more uh, practice oriented. Um, and I think that documenting the practices you do now or 10 years ago already and having a good grasp on, on that sort of having that, that book of stuff or that those bits in the cloud or whatever else should mm-hmm. become pretty valuable to a person at some point when somebody on a package of crackers can, can claim that it's that it's carbon neutral and there's a a barcode or a UPC or I don't know some sort of thing you do with your phone that says yeah it's it's good because it came from Rob's farm and this is what he does so because I don't ask me to talk about blockchain somebody mentioned blockchain works there I'm like okay that sounds good I don't know anything about it but (laughs) I mean you hear it all the time I know as much about blockchain as I know about bitcoin I just know that I just need to get somebody else to figure that out for me (laughs) there you go yeah, I don't understand the blockchain at all. I understand Bitcoin barely, but I don't understand the yeah. blockchain at all. Somebody was talking to me the other day about NFTs, and I was like, pictures? I mean, it's basically just online pictures, just JPEGs and stuff like that. And they're like, yeah, yeah. kind of. But, but then then they explained it, and it kind of made more sense. NFTs are kind of like modern paintings, I guess you could say. It's like high art, like back 10, 15 years ago. But it's all online, and it's more accessible. But still... I find it weird that a picture on the internet can go for $800,000. It's 
It's a really weird. Yeah, because I've put pictures on the internet of of and I, my pictures on the internet have not gone for eight hundred thousand dollars. So I I don't know what the heck's going on. <laughs> and it was really Maybe great pictures of my tractor know. and my and my cedar and everything else that I put on there. But yeah, people get some likes, but nobody's paying me for it. So I must have to do something different. <laughs> Maybe it's weird. There'll probably be some coin <laughs> next year, some more NFTs, some just random stuff. Online's always getting crazy. Um, yeah, so, yeah. So, so what's the future looking like for your farm? Are you guys looking to grow it? What's the future looking like for the next maybe 118 years? Well, I think uh, I think growth has always been uh, been what agriculture does, but I think growth takes separate several different forms. Whether it's in acres or whether mm-hmm. you grow your intensity or you grow, uh, you know. What, what you're doing, we were in hogs and we weren't, and, you know, we had cattle back in the day, just like everybody else did and those sorts of things. So right now um, we we farm our crops. We do a great job of it. Uh, we rent some land, we own some land. And I think most people's focus right now is to maybe try and own a little bit more of that. And uh, you have a little bit more control of, of what, what you do with it down the road, as long as taxes and stuff don't get out of hand, those sorts mm-hmm. of things. You can't control that as much. Uh, but as far as the rest of it is, I think just, uh, you know, trying to uh, stay with the trends and keep it a, a great operation for our fifth generation, for my for my kids to uh, to want to take over if they choose. And after that, I kind of have to tap out and hope that we raise them good so that they uh, have that invested in them for their kids. And you know, the tradition continues, but probably in a vastly, vastly different way than I, you or I would even be able to imagine with self-driving tractors that have been announced now and all of this different other stuff. Um, agriculture's legacy has changed for sure. So I'm not sure what it'll be, but it, I want it to stay for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and speaking of that, I saw an article the other day about a driverless tractor. And I mean, I think that stuff is so cool. It's weird, but it's cool. I think Case IH makes... Um, I think they have a driverless tractor, but it doesn't have a cab. And so you just see yeah. this tractor without a cab on the top driving. And it's you're like, oh, man, that's like out of a sci-fi movie or something. Yeah, it's a big uh, it's a big Roomba looking thing is, and, <laughs> you know, now John Deere at the at the technology or the consumer electronics expo there just a few weeks ago mm-hmm. uh, launched their uh, their eight R uh, tractor, which can be driverless, but it's got a cab on it. So it's a bit more familiar uh, for people and and great debate ensued as to how much that will actually be useful on the family farm. And uh, I think people, I think both people are right. It's going to be useless to some and it's going to be of great use to some others. So it's going to be a good product then. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how kind of everybody uses it or hates it or likes it. And you know, yeah. a, a Roomba is typically, I guess, $400 for a nice one. This will be a $400,000 Roomba, like bare minimum. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but it, it Hopefully it lasts longer. You know, you Roomba lasts for a couple of years and you throw it out and the battery goes to hell on you. Yeah. Yeah. We've got one. It, it's great, but I think the battery lasts like maybe 10 minutes now when it used to last for like 30. And so I feel like it, it just like goes under a bed and just stops and then you can never find it because it beeps once and you're like, well, crap, where'd it go? Yep. Yeah, exactly. So this is our segue into electric vehicles that we don't need to have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Everything's going electric now. Absolutely everything. <laughs> I think I saw... Uh, my father-in-law was telling me, I think there's like a Jeep Gladiator pickup truck that's all battery operated, but I think he said the range was like a hundred miles. I'm like, that, yeah. like if you, if you live in a city, that's great. But if you go on a road trip, it's going to take you days to go like across the yeah. state or across a province or yeah. something. 
we're we're in a privileged spot here when we when we talk about that. We're a mile to town, and there's 1,200 people mm-hmm. that live in Davidson, and uh, so we can see town from here. And there's actually a six bay or five bay Tesla charging station at the co-op card lock that's closer to us than it is the town. It's three quarters of a mile away there. So huh. technically, I should probably have all this. You know, we we're a good good spot for it. So it's kind of neat that we're. I wouldn't say in the middle of nowhere, but we're we're rural and we've we've got access to this stuff. So hopefully it works. But yeah, I, I do have reservations about some of it. Yeah, that's not bad. It's interesting where it's where it's going, where it'll go. I feel like everybody's going electric now, so it'll be it'll be cool to see what kind of comes up with comes up with it. Um, well, Rob, this has been awesome, man. So I found you on Twitter. If people want to follow you, see what you're doing as the the Sack Week director, just follow your farming. You're on Twitter. Where else can they go to follow you? That's about it. Uh, yeah, I'm RG Stone One on Twitter, um, and that's I, I have a LinkedIn account, and it's kind of nice. Uh, actually, you know, when you're when you're doing some uh, professionally type stuff, I, I noticed that a lot of people that are involved in technology and those sorts of things, they kind of check up on people there, and they uh, they also have a you know good messaging and stuff like that. So I am on LinkedIn, and uh, that's follow me for some family pictures on Facebook, I guess or something. But no, it, it's that. That's about it. So yeah, it was it was really neat to meet you. It just sort of popped up out of the blue there. It's like, hey, who wants to come on the Farm Traveler podcast? I said, well, that sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah, it was so, so fun. I, I tweeted that out, and that's the first time I've tweeted that. And then it got, um, I don't want to say viral, but it got reshared like 20 times. It got like 30 likes on it. And then you commented. Yeah, yeah. People comment. I was like, hey, this is great. I need to do this more often. It worked out well. Yeah, so... Uh, Hopefully, you know, I've explained some stuff that we do here for you, and hopefully your listeners uh, learned a little bit more about what we do up here in, in the frigid north. And uh, I, if anybody's got any questions, yes, they can sure, certainly reach out and ask. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, yeah, this is a random question um, that maybe you can answer. So my wife and I and our in, my in-laws, we're, we're planning to go up to Canada to see the Northern Lights next year. Would you have any recommendations on where to go? Uh, probably the second floor of my of my office in my shop. It worked pretty good. Look out the lights there. Uh, no but, way. Uh, you can you can see them. Like uh, there's been some times this last year, just for whatever uh, weather things. Yeah, the northern lights have been unreal. Uh, but the further north you go, the better. I think as far as as far as northern lights is concerned. I don't have the exact tourist guide to it, but yeah, we <laughs> we'll we'll see them lots. It's that's it's awesome. Really cool. I've seen that they've like come down like more southern this year, or or I guess in years past or something, which is really neat. I I think I don't know Denmark saw them or something for the first time in years or something. It was yep. something odd like that. Yeah, there was some sort of weather atmosphere phenomenon that they they reflected differently, I think, or something, right? So mm. yeah, lots of stuff. Farmers love farmers love weather too. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, that's one of the jobs. You got to be a weatherman, and usually you've got to be more yeah. right than the weather than your local weather guy on TV. That's for sure. It's not hard. <laughs> do you have like do you have like one of those stones outside that says like oh stone is wet it's raining if it's blowing it's shaking or if it's gone there's an earthquake or tornado that's what it is. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much what we how you you just yeah look out in the morning and see if you're either spraying or doing office work. <laughs> that's not bad. Either we're staying outside or we're doing busy work. Um, well, exactly. Rob, this- this has been awesome, man, chatting with you, meeting you, talking all things about wheat and what you guys are doing. Um, we'll have to touch base with you soon and see how things are going. That sounds great. I, yeah, anytime.
life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.